0: Lord God Heavenly Father, we rejoice on this day, for our Savior has conquered death for us and given to us eternal life. We rejoice that in our baptisms we are buried with Christ into his death, and now we also raised with him into life everlasting. So teach us to walk in that newness of life that we might always proclaim the, the death and resurrection of Christ in our lives. And Lord, let us live our lives anticipating the day when he will return. That we might bring us to be with you. That we might live forever in your presence. So bless us now as you study your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, John chapter 2. I'm going to read you the story. It's a story you all know. And um, you can follow along if you have Bibles. If not, I'll read to you. So John chapter 2. On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves a good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Okay, so that's the wedding feast at Cana. You guys all know that story, the changing of the water into wine. But um, look back if you have a Bible, but if not, I'll read it to you again. The first verse of that story in John chapter 2 starts with, on the third day... There was a wedding at Cana, and we do want to pay attention to this. Um, John, John, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, likes to use numbers as symbols. It's one of the things he does throughout his writing. Is he likes to use numbers as symbols? Okay. One of the numbers that you all know that he uses as a symbol is a thousand. Right. In the book of Revelation, it says that Christ will reign for a thousand years. And so there's all kinds of theologies built around this idea of a thousand years. But we know that a thousand is actually not a number, but a symbol. Okay? Now, it's not that hard to understand. My mom knew this too, because she would say to me, I've told you a thousand times to make your bed. (laughs) Okay, and thousand did not mean one more than nine hundred ninety nine. It just meant a lot. Okay, we also have this preserved in our in our saying and I've used it before here. If you want somebody to say this weighs a ton. okay, you don't mean it actually weighs a ton. You're not measuring it with pounds. What you mean is it weighs a lot. Okay, so a thousand is one of the word, one of the numbers that John uses as a symbol. There are some other numbers that we, that we read as symbols, especially in John, and three is one of them. Three, what does three mean? Trinity. Right, three is Trinity, so this is God's number. So three is usually God's number. And today, Easter, is what day? It's the third day since Jesus died, so... So not only is three God's number, it's also a resurrection number. Okay? And so having to do with three then, three is, is resurrection, which is also eight. Eight is also the number of resurrection because eight, this is, the, hang on for this one. Eight is the number after seven. Yeah, that's, that's, you didn't know you were going to learn something, did you? So you came to church, you learned something. So what happens is God created the world, right? The first day, what did God make? Light, okay, light, there should not be an extra light, I don't know what's going on there, We'll try again, light, Okay. The second day, he created the sky and the seas. The third day, he created land. The fourth day, he created the stars and the sun and the moon. Okay? The fifth day, he created birds and... And fishes, okay? And the sixth day he created aminals. That's for my daughters. Aminals. Thank you, Anna. And man. Okay? So, you see here, light, and then the things that give light, the sky and the sea, the things that fill the sky and the sea, and then the land, and the stuff that lives on land, right? That's the six days of creation. Yeah? Is that familiar? And then on the seventh day, what did he do? Nothing. It's the Sabbath. And what do you do on Sabbath? You rest. Okay? So, we just went through Holy Week in which we did this. Okay? So, on the first day of Holy Week is the Day of Light. Okay? This is when Christ enters into Jerusalem. And on the sixth day, what did he do? He dies. Okay? He dies. And this is a fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. During the sacrificial system, animals died to pay for the sins of man. But now at the end of the sacrificial system, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, not animals die for the sins of man, but God, who is man, dies for the sins of man. So, he is a fulfillment of the sixth day, so, what did he do yesterday? He rested. Right? So, yesterday, Holy Saturday, what does Jesus do? He keeps the Sabbath. Perfectly keeps the Sabbath. He rests. As a matter of fact, he was so resting, he was dead. dead. That's resting. Okay? Now, today, then, is the eighth day. The eighth day is the first day of of your new life. After you rest, then you start the eighth day, which is the first day. So Sunday is always the first day and the eighth day. And the reason this is so important for John is because in John chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus occurs on the eighth day. Okay? So Jesus dies on Friday. Three days later, he rises on the... 8th day. Okay? So that's the way John does numbers. So the 8th day is the day of new creation. Okay? Now, we've done this before, we've, we've read this before, but just a little review. This is why baptismal fonts traditionally have 8 sides. Because 8 is the numbers of new beginning. Okay? So in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that in Noah's Ark, eight people were saved and this symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Okay? So, eight is also a number of baptism. It's a baptismal number. So, So, eight being your new creation, your baptism and your resurrection. Okay, so that's numbers. That's just the way numbers work in the Bible. Any questions on that or thoughts? Okay, so um, that has nothing to do with the questions. So the wedding takes place on the third day. So now we're thinking about resurrection days, and okay. So, we, we have, we're kind of halfway through this. So, if you look at the story, it says in verse 6, Now there were six stone water there, jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Okay? So, what, were, what was the purpose, the old purpose of the stone water jars? What did these, what did these stone water jars do? They, they washed. They foot washed. They hand washed. They washed um, the utensils. They, they washed vessels. So, have you ever washed dishes? This was the dishwashing system. But, not just dishwashing, meaning so they don't stink in the morning, but washing in order to keep things ceremonially clean. Okay? So, Back in the day, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there was a series... This is just bizarre. Okay. I have to now... How do I get a new... A new how do I get a new screen? I don't remember now. This is different than it was. Go to full screen. That one. There's my button. I knew I had a button somewhere. Okay. So... Um, remember the Old Testament? Where did God live? So, so go, back, go back before the promised land, before the temple, when they're wandering around in the desert. Where did God live? Mountain. Okay, He was in a mountain, but then when they walked, they left the mountain, where did he start living? He lived, he lived in a tabernacle, which was kind of this oblong-shaped thing in the middle of the, of the people, right? He lived in a tabernacle, and around the tabernacle was a courtyard. Right with, with a fence around it. And Moses and Aaron lived here by the gate so you couldn't get in without going through Moses and Aaron. And the Levites, they were like, kind of like the holy tribe. They lived around here. They lived like this. That's where they lived. And then the tribes of Israel lived here. Three here, three here, three here, and three here. Judah was obviously the first one because that's the Messianic tribe. Now, here's the problem. If a sinner ends up in the presence of God, what happens to the sinner? They die. That's a bad thing, right? Yeah? Okay. So, what they wanted to do was stop people from going into the presence of God with sin. So, in order to live in your, your tent in the, the nation of Israel, in this encampment, you had to be clean. Okay? You had to be clean. You didn't have to be holy. You just had to be clean to live here. Okay? If you were not clean, you had to go away from the, t- the camp. You had to get out of the camp. So you had to go out here into the wilderness. Okay. So what happened is the Old Testament, all those things you read in Leviticus, all those weird laws you read in Leviticus, they're all about this system of of the closer you live to God, you've got to be clean and holy before you can be in God's presence. If you and if you go in God's presence and you not are not clean and holy, you die. So, what they did was in order to, if you are ceremonially unclean, you had to do something to become Clean. Well, one of the things you could do to become clean was to take a bath or to wash whatever utensil had become unclean, okay? So, um, in order to get back into the encampment the, the of Israel, you had to become clean. Now, there's a whole series of how to do this, but one of the things you could do was actually physically wash something that was unclean to make it clean. So, you had to have clean water in clean vessels in order to make things clean. These stone water jars were in order to make things clean that were unclean. Does that make sense? Do you guys do this? Do you guys ever go into the presence of a holy God? Yeah, and how do do you make sure that you go there and don't die? What's that? We confess. And when we confess, what do we say? I am unclean. Right? And I deserve God's wrath. So, I'm only coming because of Jesus. This isn't hard, people. Because of Jesus, okay? So, when, when we think about these purification things in, in the wedding at Cana story, what it's talking about is, is that this whole idea of Jesus being the presence of God with people actually introduces a problem. What happens if God shows up and you're sinning? You die. So now Jesus, good news in John chapter 1, Jesus is God. Bad news is now God's in your midst. And if you're sinning, what happens? You die. So we have this story in which Jesus invited to a wedding, right? And we talked last week how a wedding is always about Christ in the church. And now, God is present at a wedding and there's need for purification. Okay? And the old way to do it in the Old Testament was through washings with stone jars and water. But I, I don't want to ruin the end of the story, but things are going to change. That's not the way it is anymore. Okay? So that's, that's why we have stone water jars. Now I'm going to get back into this weird thing where I don't know how to use my old computer. <laughs> okay? So number two. So who understands what Jesus does in this story? Who actually gets it? Like gets it by it or gets it by sees it? Who sees it? The servants. Okay? And this whole story, only the servants know what happened. The person that tasted the wine has no idea where it came from. The bride, the groom has no idea where it comes from. The disciples don't even know what happened as far as we know. The only people that get it are the servants. The servants who do what Jesus said. Okay? So, when Jesus turns water into wine, he does it in a way that not everyone knows what he did. Not everyone knows who did anything. Most people at the wedding don't even know anything happened, right? Do you think about this? They're just like hanging out getting wine they don't know Jesus did this okay so just the servants know number three (coughs) so how is Jesus better than the Old Testament Hmm. that's funny so how is Jesus better than the Old Testament he's the fulfillment of it but why is that better why is Jesus better? I mean, think about the, the the way the question is actually. Well, we don't die. The old, there was grace in the Old Testament. Why is Jesus actually better, Scott? Well, in many ways, man was trying to do things to appease God, and now God comes and does it for us. Okay, so there's in one way, there is one change which is which was instead of um, stick figure person trying to get to God and never being able to do it, now in Christ, God has come to man, right? And that's gooder because God's better at it, right? But, but here, I'm not going to let you get away with that answer. I mean, that's, that's the right answer. That's a good answer. But it's not complete because here's the thing. It's not as though no one in the Old Testament was saved. Some people actually did this and it worked. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, according to the law, I was perfect. Yeah, you think he says guilty, but he doesn't. He says, perfect. Perfect. Paul doesn't say, I tried really hard, but I couldn't do it, and therefore I realize I need someone to save me. No, Paul goes, according to the law, I was perfect. See, the gospel is not actually that you don't have to do anything. That's not the gospel. The gospel is actually better than that. Okay? In the Old Testament, Everything that God did, this is a weird picture to end on, in the Old Testament, everything was looking forward to something that we couldn't see. It was, un, it, was just, it was all imagery. It was all pictures. It was all, trust me, it's going to happen. But in Christ, now God's definitive action to save you has occurred. Okay, so every single thing in the Old Testament that was talked about was done in order to point us to Christ. And now that Christ has come, you don't ever need to wonder if God loves you. You know without a doubt that God loves you. That's what the cross is. God has done something definitively that changes history, that changes everything, and that says that you are now loved by God and you are forgiven, right? And that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we celebrate today. It's not just, "Yay, you get to live forever, because that's not actually true for everyone, oddly enough. What we're celebrating is that God has defeated all of our enemies definitively. Not might, not yeah, it would be nice. He has. It's done. The work has been accomplished. So now going back to this picture, this is still a problem in the New Testament. This was all this was this was the way it was in the Old Testament. Right? This is how God saved Israel in the Old Testament. God saved Israel. Israel didn't earn their salvation. This is just always a misunderstanding of how we do things, even now. So, what I want you to think about is, even now, now that we know that God loves us and He sent His Son Jesus to die for us and rise again, we are still tempted to think, but I've got to do something to make sure that that's for me. See, that's always, the question is, um, if, if there's a God, which we'll pretend there is, at least for a moment. You guys okay with that? Are you guys okay with there being a God? <laughs> I hate to tell you this, but it doesn't matter if you're okay with it or not. <laughs> he, he's not overly flummoxed if you say no. He still exists. You know what I mean? Like, he does, it's not like that are so, so let's pretend you exist, which is probably a bigger stretch in my mind. <laughs> But let's pretend you exist. Okay? And let's, let's just pretend for a moment that this God loves people. He just loves people. He's just a loving God. He likes people. Because He made them and He likes what He made so He loves people. So that's cool. But the issue is if I am guilty for my sins, how do I know if God loves this sinner? Not whether God loves sinners in general, but how do I know if God loves this sinner? And that's where usually the, the idea that I have to do something comes in. It's because, hey, well, he loves everyone in general, so he's done that with Jesus, right? But if I, but if I want to be saved, I have to what? Jesus. I have to accept Jesus which is fun. What else do we have to do? What else do people say? People say you've got to have good works, right? What's that? You've got to, I've got to repent. Okay, and so what we do is we eventually find something somewhere that says, well, God's done a lot and he's done a really good job. Yay, God. But I've got to do a little bit of something to meet him, right? I've got to do a little something just to meet him to make sure it works for me. And, and that's where all of our theology of, you know, I play some part in this comes in, is that God's done a lot of stuff to show he loves people, but now how do I make sure it's for me? And this is where Jesus comes and he says something radically different, is he says, this little part doesn't exist. Jesus actually says that God saves people with no effort on the person's part. They don't play any role in this. And and what Jesus, in the miracle of Cana, what happens is Jesus simply gives without the person receiving the gift doing anything to get it. It's simply given. And... This is one of the hardest things to understand in all theology, but this is actually the the New Testament way and the Old Testament way of picturing what God does is God accomplishes everything you need for salvation on the cross and in the empty tomb, and then he gives it to you without your asking for it or even doing anything to get it. He just gives it to you. Now, how does he do that? He gives it to you in his... I'm going to teach you guys this. There's one way and one way only that God gives you His gifts his word. his word. That's exactly right. God gives you everything He's ever done through His Word. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. How did God create the whole world? By speaking. How does God give you faith? Through His Word. Through His Word. Okay? Now, now that we understand that, how does He give you His Word? He gives it to you in preaching and speaking and le- and reading and learning. So we call that the Word. Uh, they end up calling it the Word again. And He also gives it to you in His Holy Sacraments. Here's what I want you to do. And I'm not kidding. I want you to do this the next time we have the Lord's Supper. You know you have that weird pause where you don't know what to do while everyone else is communing and you're you are singing of course we're, we're singing you know but but if you're not singing or in between while we're, the hymns are not playing open your hymnals to the front after the psalms after the liturgies before the hymns there's Luther's small catechism and in Luther's small catechism read the section on the Lord's Supper what you're going to find is something that's phenomenal. Is that the point of the Lord's Supper is the Word. Read what Luther says about the Lord's Supper. This is not just eating and drinking. No, 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 no. This is special bread and special wine because of God's Word. And Luther says this, the essential thing in the sacrament are these words given and shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. And Luther goes on to say, whoever has faith in these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. And then he says, why would it say that? And then what does he do? He quotes words of Scripture. So what happens is when God gives to us his word in baptism and the Lord's Supper and in the hearing of his word the Holy Spirit creates faith and that faith receives as a gift what God has done on the cross and in the empty tomb do you see who's doing all of that This is all God doing for you the acts of salvation. So when John is writing his gospel, and even in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, what he's getting at is Jesus is here as God in the flesh accomplishing for you the things that are necessary for you to be saved. And he's going to do all of it. All of it. Okay? So, God, this is one of my favorite things to say, and I don't know if it's good to say or not, but I just say it. Let God do God things. Stop trying to do God things. You do human things. Let God do God things. It seems to work out better. When I try to do God things, I mess all the human things up. So, Who's in charge of things like eternal life? God. Who's in charge of salvation? God. Who's in charge of judgment? God. So let's let God do God things. Right? What do humans do? We sin. I know you all are pretty good at that. (laughs) But we're not supposed to sin. What are we supposed to be doing? What are humans supposed to, What did God make us to do? To love Him and serve each other. So let's do that. See, what happens is, if we try to do the God stuff, we're telling Him that we're better at being Him than He is. He says, you're saved because my son died and rose to forgive your sins. And I'll give that to you in word and sacrament. We say, no, 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 no. I'm going to try to earn your love by doing good works. Or I'm going to try to, to philosophically figure you out. Or I'm trying to do something else. And we're basically saying to him, no, I don't like your plan. I don't like you doing stuff. I'm going to take over because I'm in charge here. Right? And that's our original sin that always says, I'm in charge here. So this now. Think about the wedding at Cana. They're at a wedding and they're out of wine. And the mother of Jesus comes to him and says, they're out of wine. And Jesus says to her, I'm God. Let's review who's who, mom. <laughs> Instead he says, woman. Not mom, woman. What does it have to do with us? My time has not yet come. And so when he says that, as I told you last week, whenever the Gospel of John says my time, that's always a reference to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Always, throughout the Gospel. So in John chapter 17, he says, my, fine, my time has finally come. And he goes to, and he says, I will glorify my name and my Father's name, and he goes to the cross. Okay? So he's saying to Mary, to his mother, he's saying, you don't tell me what to do to accomplish the work of God. I will do what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it. Right? And then his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you because he's going to tell you to do stuff. Okay, so the first thing is that that God does God's stuff. And that's an important thing in in the Gospel of John is that Jesus then, Jesus is the one that does God's work. So I want you to think that through really quick and then I'll let you go. Jesus is the one that does God's work. Not you. Jesus. So when you're reading the Bible and it talks about somebody doing something good, Who is that? Jesus. Not me. So when you read the parables and there's somebody doing something good in a parable, who is that? That's Jesus. Right? When you're reading a psalm and someone does something righteous and good, who is that? Jesus. Jesus. Try it. Try to read the Psalms that way. Try to read the Scriptures that way, where Jesus is always the one who's acting on God's behalf, is always doing the work of God. Now, have any of you ever done something that isn't sinful? You probably have. You're in church, you've received the sacraments, God does something in your life, right? You're not just sinning. Have you ever done anything not sinful? Yes, you have. Because now you have Christ in you. And so the Holy Spirit works through that to make you do things that we call good works. And they are good because God's doing them in you. So when you do something good, who's doing it? Jesus. Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that does God's work. He acts for God. Okay? So so really in in this first Miracle in John chapter 2, what he's really doing is he's setting up the entire rest of the gospel. Now, let's review real quick. I'm taking it very symbolically in some ways, but this was an actual historical event. Jesus actually did turn water into wine one day. I'm just showing the way that John wrote the story as the first story in his gospel. Okay, he's writing all this to kind of give us a clue what's coming ahead. And um, so any quick questions before we go? Okay, Um, yeah. So let's pray, then we'll go. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we rejoice that your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, has accomplished our salvation for us, that he has done the very works that you sent him to do, and so he has saved the world through his death, and he has given life to all of us and all who believe through his resurrection. Keep us ever in that one true faith, trusting in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank y'all.